Welcome back. Yeah, thanks. Spring break is concluding. It's broken. Spring is well underway. Almost summer out there. Yeah, this is as much summer as I want. If we lived in a civilized <laughs> temperature zone. But it, we live in a zone that gets a little uncivilized. But we have the springtime, though. It's is is, gorgeous. It's beautiful, yeah. Like, it's perfect right now. Sometimes, it, and, and June can be variable, right? Right. I mean, sometimes June is glorious for most of June. July and August are pretty brutal. Yeah. Honestly. I mean. Yeah, we live in a place where. Just to be fair about it. Where during the summer you don't get heat waves. You you get heat. Heat. Yeah. And then maybe you'll get a wave of slightly less hot. Yeah. Right. And right. Boy, wave hate, is not the word you would use. I, I hate the heat. I, I yeah. you know, it's I much great. prefer the cold. And, and, you know, I know our, our New York and, and Boston listeners are like, you know, right. Basically right now, screw that guy. Exactly. Because cold has <laughs> yeah. its own drawbacks right. uh, for sure. And yeah. I'm, and I don't deny that at all, but, uh, but yeah. here we are in oral argument headquarters. Mm. Um, got Just, the, got the windows and the doors open. Yep. The 70 degree plus air streaming in. It's wonderful. Spring is, is sprung. Spring break is sprang. It is pretty nice. Now you'll notice something when you look over at me. I will. Mm-hmm. All I can uh, we see don't have, we don't have video. We don't do video. We do not. That's true. Why but are if you we still did, wearing your headphones? Well, that was what I was going <laughs> to, I was going to see. This is like one of those puzzles where you have to like, where's you know, Waldo? There's and, a scene of like, like a tree and some squirrels, but you have to like, find the squirrel. You have to like circle the, the, the rake, which actually looks like the squirrel's tail. Mm, you know what I'm talking about? Right, or there's right. like a shovel, which is part of the tree. Right. I look like me, except I got headphones on for no reason, because we got no guests today. Okay. Right. So why do you have those on? Because uh, I was checking levels, and I'm an idiot, okay. and I left them on. So I'm going to take them off now. Okay. Which will be a good experiment to see if I actually talk differently with them off. Okay. You know how that works? I do. Yeah. Okay, there they go. Oh Let's... my God, you sound so different. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> well, now I hear myself differently, and so I'll modulate my... You know uh, how that works. Right. Yeah. Um. So, so as we mentioned last week, you know, this, this is a little bit of a late, uh, episode. Yes. We try to get them out like clockwork on Friday or maybe on Saturday, depending on when we, you know, on our guest schedule on that Friday. So we're a little late this weekend. And we mentioned that because it's spring break and I was coming back right. in town and stuff's happening. And yes. so, and, and it's also a little bit, un, we're not trying to do a guest this week. We're right. just, um, just, just, you know, as just Joe. But it's good to get an episode out every week. It really is. Yeah. It, it I think it helps with the, good to with chat. the rhythm of things. And we have. It's good because we have a bumper crop of, of feedback. Amazing feedback. Uh, and some really uh, great detailed feedback this week. Yes, very um, thoughtful. And we might get to something else that I wanted to talk about. Listener John, I thought was, he, it, it struck me as funny when he apologized for the length of his note, given that listener Asher's notes put John's <laughs> note, it made John's <laughs> note look like a tweet. Well, I mean, truly. So we, which is only to say. Or listener Asher's note was a dissertation compared to listener Which John's. is only to say that, that we got generous, wonderful, detailed feedback. Yeah, People it was were a real pleasure. We're engaged with the discussion about King against Burwell right. and various statutory interpretation stuff, and it, which I think is always fun. Uh, interpretation, not King against Burwell. Right. Uh, and, uh, and so, yeah, delightful. It, it reminds me, we used to get, uh, we haven't gotten, you know, listener Spencer has sent us some, some long hmm. detailed notes in the past. In his day? In his day. Back in the day. Yeah. I think he's working now. Yeah, I think he's working and, and, um, and maybe that's it, but, uh. And I hope still listening. Oh, I do too. Um, and and we'll hear from him eventually again, I'm sure. Um, but it is great to get And new listeners as well. We'll hear from other, lots of people. Uh. Oral argument podcast at gmail.com. That's right. What, what, what is that again? 
oralargumentpodcast at gmail.com. Now, where do I put the funny business in that email if I want to? You can, (laughs) if you are, if you are so inclined, (laughs) right, uh, you can left of the at, Mm -hmm. you can put in as many dots as you like. Yeah, no. You could have a dot between every letter and it would get to us. It'd look a little weird, but it would get to us. It just seems incongruous. It seems like there should be one email address with some variations, but no. So for a long time, we said no funny business. Turns out, listener tells us, you can put in at least dots. Limited funny business. The princes of Google in their wisdom. We're also Oral Argument on Twitter, all one word. And we're also on Facebook as Oral Argument, so you can like us there. Sure. And and then uh, one other thing. I don't know. Why are we doing this at the beginning? Like, we should do something great. Okay, and well then, then and then people can right, like do these stop, things. But stop wh- editorializing. Start doing. What do you want to say? <laughs> this, I want to say that you should rate us five stars on iTunes. Okay. Okay. So let's just leave it at that. Nice. Um, so we're, where we got do a lot we begin? Where, where do we begin with this feedback? Well, I think we've got we've got a great. We can actually do some sort of reportage. Uh, thanks to friend of the show Anthony Christ, okay, uh, who uh, gave us a tip on an article the Atlanta NPR station's website. And this is a story about legislation pending here, anti-speed trap legislation pending Boom. here. Ba-boom! <laughs> uh, pending here in Georgia. Yeah. And then the, the notion of this law, and it amends current law, current law in Georgia, which I didn't know, uh, is that, uh, and this, the, this is a state law designed to deter uh, localities from uh, creating speed traps for the mere purpose of generating revenue. So what the state law apparently says now is that if a, if, if a jurisdiction, a local jurisdiction, gets 40% or more of its revenue annually from speed tickets, uh, that the state can step in and take away that jurisdiction's ability to use speed detection devices. Mm. So it kind of hampers them by taking away some of their technological toys. So it does refer to devices. So I, we're I believe thinking so. radars and things and the, right. the laser systems and all that. Yeah. S- and, uh, and that current law includes the idea that speeding tickets when the driver was exceeding the posted limit by more than 17 miles per hour don't count toward that total. Yeah, it's so, weird. It's, so it's almost a tacit acknowledgement like, of the safety rationale. Right, like there's serious yeah. speeding and then there's trivial speeding, in right. essence. And if you gin up a lot of revenue by writing a lot of tickets for frivolous speeding, no. Right. But, uh, and and we won't, so we won't count the ones for serious speeding, as it were, right? Uh, but this pending bill, which has passed the Georgia State Senate, but has not yet, as far as I can tell, I look today, passed the Georgia State House of Representatives. Right. Um, uh would amend that law so that all a locality's speeding tickets count toward the total. Oh, even even the dangerous. Even the ones where the person exceeded the limit by more than 17 miles per hour. Oh, that's interesting. It would so simply I, all count. I saw that Anthony sent that. I was going to let you, you know, fill me in on the details. Yes. So I could have a fresh, fresh reaction on the show. And boy, I don't know what to think about that. I, I think there are some complicated issues here. Okay. I think that... One of them, again, <laughs> one of those complicated issues that I think deserves its own show has to do with the incentives for policing more generally. Yes. This relates to all the Ferguson stuff. and Right. Uh, Indeed. Right. The, the, the ways that the, the variety of incentives that exist on police officers in various jurisdictions, whether they're county, city, different size cities. I, 
I think there's a great kind of sociological discussion mm-hmm. to be had and just purely legal discussion to be had. So maybe this is more than one episode, but it's funny how this is this this desire that we've had for a while to talk about that issue, but we need we want to find the right guest to make it a better informed discussion that I mean you and I can talk about this, but I don't know if people want to listen to <laughs> our relatively uninformed uh speculation about it. Uh so I think someone would help us think about that better. But it's weird how this overlaps with our what is clearly within our expertise. Indeed. Speed trap law, because we are the world's foremost podcasting authority on on speed right. trap law. Um but these come together, right? I mean, um, yeah. It, I, it, so the other thought, so that's one thought is that, boy, this raises another aspect of this issue that I've wanted to talk about for a long time. Yeah. Um, the Cause second Because it, really, it really does appear that some local governments decide to use a speeding ticket revenue as a, as a very important source of revenue for that locality. And once they make that decision, all sorts of other habits and practices can come into play uh, and like everything else in america uh it it can therefore once it exists begin to touch on can begin not must begin you know may uh, begin um to get tangled up in uh you know the color line the strange yeah. problem of race in america and so uh, which is certainly what has happened in ferguson that it, it would appear from the justice department's report that uh that traffic stops and other techniques for ticketing right. uh, became tools of a systematic uh, plundering of the black community by white law enforcement and white judiciary and all. Cause it, so, right. re, you know, really, really troubling stuff. Yeah. Uh, but among other things that I've, you know, this just general kind of contempt of cop culture in some police departments. I mean, in the, that report seems to say that that, that culture right. is emblematic of what was going on in, in Ferguson. Yes. Um, that, that basically, uh, the power to enforce the law becomes the power to make the law, right? Because you're picking and choosing what you're going to enforce, especially when you have broad grants of authority, like disorderly conduct charges that you can bring. I mean, and, 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 and they were going even beyond that, right? right? They made a law And grants of authority that are broad for really good reasons, actually. Like it's, it's, if, if you want, um, you know, the uh, disorderly conduct, Right. Try, trying to come up with a phrase that captures when it might be important for a, a police officer to be able to stop somebody for and, and for a legally specified and specifiable reason. Right. Mm-hmm. To be able to spell all that out uh, m- might actually be counterproductive. Like I, c- I actually see the wisdom. Well, I would say it has use- costs. I would say it has costs. I don't know. Counterproductive. Yeah. yeah. It has costs that could in some context far exceed the benefits. Of, of spelling those things out at least that's yeah. where the impulse can come yeah, from yeah, so yeah. I, I, so yeah. i see that there's a i'm at least open to the possibility that if one learned a lot more about where those phrases come from right that part of where they come from is actually a prudent assessment of the costs and benefits in particular circumstances yeah well i, I so i'd yeah, be interested just, to learn more about them i would be too I'll, I'll leave i'll leave that part of it at that the the other part is uh um that you know, this, the Georgia law, as you read it to me and as you, as you, as you report it to me, um, seems to be kind of trying to figure out whether um, speeding tickets and, and fines are being used as a form of taxation, right? I mean, that's what, 
if, if, if we think what's really going on is police departments are funding all kinds of fancy cop equipment and maybe even salary, I don't know what all they fund through these fees and where the money goes and whether how much is kept by the department, how much is shared with the municipality or the mm. county. I've got no idea. You know, that's right. something we would need to look at more. Um, yeah, and but, I should say, I haven't read any of this. I haven't read the Georgia bill. I haven't yeah. read the existing Georgia statute. So don't I don't want people to misunderstand. Sure, sure. I, I don't know those details either. In both my legal theory class and and I think in my legislation regulation class, some, sometimes I teach, you know, we talk about like rules and standards, right? Yeah, pretty typical thing, right? And what's the emblematic uh, um, or uh, stereotypical rule in the law? Like it's the speed limit, it's right? the speed limit, right. Um, and, and then you immediately see how complicated it is by asking, what is the law really of speeding? <laughs> Right. So if the if the sign says 55, right, what is the law really? And you'll get people arguing, well, it's 55, because if you go over 55, you're exceeding the posted speed limit and you are breaking the law. Right. And but then when you build in the fact that police officers have discretion and they can't pull everyone over, or at least they don't, they don't seem to. Right. Like if you're going 57 and a 55, are you going to be pulled over? And the answer to that, of course, is no. Almost everywhere, no. Right. So what really is the law there? Is it right. illegal to go over 56? Uh, see, this, this kind of pushes on what, right. what you mean by the law, right? Although so we fair, say no. Yeah. I mean, we say no in a context where, like, we don't know what the answer would be. Like, what if, what if we figured out, is, is that true for women who are driving? Is it right. for men? Is it, is it as true for people who are driving who aren't white as who are? Is right. it as true for young people who are driving as for older people who are right. driving? We actually don't know the answers to those questions. Well, so that's what... I mean, that, that's what I think is interesting about this, right? So if uh, we think that for most people, right, driving 57 and a 55 is not illegal in the sense that you are not going to be pulled over, like even if you pass a cop, right, you're, just, you're not going to face any consequence for that. Right. Um, then the potential, well, and, and there are speed traps, right, where people routinely are pulled over for going maybe 62 and a 55 or something like that, right? right. Uh, if that happens, but like you pull people, no one thinks it's dangerous to drive 62 in that particular place, then I think you could probably say that this is being used as a form of taxation, right? It's being used to fund governmental operations, yes. right? Um, in the same way that uh, most taxes are not, you know, there's certain sin taxes, takes you in a different direction for cigarettes and other things. But most kinds of taxes, we, we although we know that taxation discourages the kind of behavior, at the margin discourages the kind of behavior which is being taxed, Right. Um, for income taxes and property taxes and everything, you know, it's not an absolute, it, it's not like you're being punished, right? No. Right. And, and, and it's not like it's labeling the conduct as bad. This gets into the Obamacare one decision, which we'll get to the Obamacare two in a second. Um, let me see if I'm going somewhere interesting. You look quizzical, mm-hmm. but, um, uh, but the point is that if, you know, if we think there's really nothing wrong with going 59 so that if we, in the heart, in, in, in the cops, heart of hearts, right. Heart of hearts, heart of heart. Hmm. Uh, even the cop would say this is not really dangerous, but you know, technically you're going over and so I can stop you. So we're going to do it. And, and say 70% of the budget of the, that police department is being funded by these speeding tickets, which, you know, no one really thinks, um, uh, the infractions are dangerous for most of those. Then really we can say this is a kind of taxation. Right. And And, and what's dangerous about that is what you just said earlier, Joe, right? What's dangerous about that is if in fact driving 59 is illegal or not, depending on whether you are white or depending on whether or not you have an out-of-state license plate on your car. And, right? the, latter, and the latter one is one I want to also pursue because, it, it, and it needn't even be out-of-state, it could simply be out-of-community, right? Who, right? Who's more likely to offend 
um, is people who are not from town. Right. Right. So it's really just in town and out of town. And a lot of out of town drivers will be in state drivers. So you can imagine why, uh, why a majority of Georgia state legislators would think it's in the interest of my constituents to not be in some other Georgia town right. getting pulled over and paying a local tax, right? They pay the taxes they can predict at home, the sales tax, the property tax, the, the fee for using a local pool, whatever yeah. it might be, right? Right. But they don't want the unpredictable one because they're driving in a different part of the state that they're less familiar with. And therefore, right. they don't realize that's a speed trap and they act in a way that wouldn't get them pulled over in in their own hometown. It's right? an interesting kind of tragedy of the commons in a way, isn't well, it? That, or, or, a, or a sort of like a transboundary problem. Well, like I was there's, a, say, there's, a, there's a problem of, of making sure that where the thing is getting imposed co- lines up with who gets to decide whether it gets imposed, right? So you've got the people in town deciding to impose a tax on out-of-towners who don't have yeah. any voice in deciding what happens in town. Yeah, yeah so it's like a it's a federalism of course. issue what i was going to say though is that it, you know if you have like the the downtown where everybody commutes and then you have community a community b community c which are in a line away from the downtown right uh-huh. so community c is the furthest okay. and the farthest and and all the people from community c commute through communities b and a in order to get downtown right sure. um and then if it's more complicated than that so these communities are all over the place so if you're in any given community a lot of your residents are going to have to travel through other communities to get through the downtown. Right. Right. And by communities, I mean, even like highways that just run through counties and stuff. Um, like, uh, in, as an individual community, it's in your interest to pull a bunch out, out of community people over. Right. Right. (laughs) On the other hand, your residents are being pulled over by other communities. Right. So this is a weird form of taxation where, like you don't have an incentive not to tax unless you can do it through the state. Right. Unless you can restrain everybody from taxing in this way. Hold on, you don't have a... In other words, your residents would be better off if they could get to the downtown dr- driving at a reasonable speed, maybe 17 miles over as a proxy for, for right. kind of what's reasonable, right? Um, if they could be assured of driving through it, they're not going to be pulled over in some kind of weird trap for going like 63 in a 55 in a place that's going downhill where you don't monitor your speed, you know? Well, so hold on. So, so yeah. a cynic would say that what a town wants is it wants to be able to... Uh, impose on people out of town and have none of its residents imposed on elsewhere exactly right but they can't they can't accomplish that right what they can accomplish is imposing on people from out of town and they might also think well you know if other people decide to do that whatever it's a race to the bottom there's nothing i can do about that all i can do is make sure that we're imposing on people from out of town at least we get ours Right. right Um, so at the level of the state, they can solve that problem by getting to a better equilibrium for everybody. Exactly. Yeah. Is that what you were saying? Yeah, governing the, governing the commons Ah. in a way, right? I mean, this is, you know, we can't, um, uh, but it it doesn't make for, it doesn't make sense for us as a community, community unilaterally to disarm. But it's not by propertizing something that wasn't propertized. It's by changing the level of government. It's by changing the level at which the governance occurs. It's governance rather than exclusion. Right. Right. It's not giving everybody a property right to do whatever. And in fact, it's shifting governance. It's taking it from one level to a bigger, to a level that embraces more of the actors. Yeah. But that's what, that's usually what governance means in that situation, right? That we're we're finding a way to get these people to coordinate, right? And, And as individual communities, they can only coordinate by kind of tit for tat retaliation. But but sometimes you don't have uh, yeah okay at higher level you're getting them all together in a room and getting them to impose a mutually right applicable restraint right 
Yeah, I feel like we've taken an, an exciting topic and and um, and turned it nerdy and hopefully not dull. That's what we do. That's what we do. Yeah. So I don't know. The, so that was There's just one piece that. of feedback. Yeah, and, and that's a great one. I mean, this is like yes. speed trap law in our back door. Exactly. At, at our back door in our backyard. Yes. <laughs> um, in our back door. I think that's a different podcast. <laughs> Maybe not a family one. <laughs> oh god. Oh boy. <laughs> this started off as a serious show. <laughs> Not my fault. It really didn't. It really didn't. I think even in episode zero, it was a ridiculous, <laughs> ridiculous podcast from the very beginning. All right, all and right. I like it that way. I do too. I it's like gr- it that way. It's great. Okay, fun. so we actually do have some. So, so that uh, that is actually an interesting topic, which re- which reaches into several other interesting topics, which yes. is related to some, well, a silly topic that we've developed over time. This, uh, the our speed expertise, trap law. the yeah, areas yeah. of our expertise, um, and the application of Immanuel Kant's theories to speed trap law, which we specialize in. Um, but we have some. So last week we talked about this case, King versus Burwell. Yes. Um, and uh, by the way, I think we should save for the end the feedback that we got, which involves our getting a bottle of whiskey. I agree. That so will be our crowning hold, moment for this week. And this is apropos of, of listener Asher's email to us, mm-hmm. uh, having about. Last week's episode. Okay. Because I want to emphasize, I think the last third of our shows is always the best part. Okay. Wouldn't, wouldn't you say in general, like the in, like our shows get better? You kind of get warmed up. I think last week is, is an example of that. Yeah. I felt like it took us a while to get... No, I, I didn't listen to it again. I couldn't stand to it because I had to edit. I had to just go quickly. I didn't right. really... And, and anyway, I, I didn't want to listen to it again. Okay. But um, I, I felt like that. But let me... So we got an email from a listener, Asher. Uh, about our discussion of the King versus Burwell case, the case that I call Obamacare 2. Yes. Um, this is the one, uh, a statutory challenge. Currently pending, argued, not yet decided. Right. This is the one, again, saying that uh, that, that federal subsidies um, to basically middle-class individuals uh, are not available on exchanges which are established by the federal government. I would say lower-income individuals. I would not say middle-class individuals. I, but... I think middle, well... This is a larger conversation about what middle class is. Um, uh, you know, me- Medicaid was supposed to reach up a little bit through Medicaid expansion, and the subsidies were supposed to reach certain group of middle class, uh, middle income earners and family. Anyway, well, who cares? On right? the individual right insurance now, market. For, right. Yeah, for right now, um, within income limits, uh, you're entitled to a, a, a subsidy to buy insurance on one of the exchanges, right? Yes. Um, and what exchanges? Exchange, the exchanges established by the state. Yeah. Right. In which you live. And so this whole uh, as we discussed last time, this whole challenge turns on that phrase exchange established by the state. And so the 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 challenge is that if you live in a state where the state refused to establish an exchange and so the federal government established, quote unquote, such exchange uh, through the uh, Health and Human Services Department, which I would say means established a state exchange. As I said last week, I mean, my reading of the statute and the relevant stuff is there's one kind of exchange. It's a state exchange. It's yeah. either state run or federal run. Of course, that's the very issue in the case. Well, and that's the, is this that a sensible reading of the statute or not? And, and to be clear, listener Asher, I think, had a very nuanced email about this, which very. I think in general, I think maybe agrees with our conclusion, but maybe not for our reasons. I think he thought we were a little bit too dismissive of the arguments against um, because part of this, part yes. of our, part of last week's episode was kind of, you know, while recognizing the, at least I recognize maybe the good faith, especially of some of the law profs and others who are involved in, in, in this, right? I mean, they, 
clearly against Obamacare in general and, and, uh, uh, but, but seem to believe in this are making good faith arguments that happen to match up with their interests in terms of the statute. Right. I don't know how you think about all that. And we talked last time about how you separate those two things a little bit, I think, which can be hard to do. It seems to be hard. And, uh, but listener Asher, I think thinks that we gave too little credit to that side because we were somewhat dismissive of how this could even be a case. And, And I think that's because he seems to be in the camp of it, you know, it's ambiguous rather than it clearly it's the statute clearly reads in the way the government argues that it reads, which is right. how it reads to me is to me the, too. So there are three categories, right? The government's clearly right. It's right. ambiguous. The challengers are clearly right. My recollection is Asher called the position that the challengers are clearly right, nearly frivolous, if not actually frivolous. Right. So he, I think he's putting himself very much in the, it's ambiguous. There are, there, it's a tough statute to read. There are tough provisions to knit together. Depending on how you look at it, it looks like you're rendering some of the text surplus, which of course is not a good idea when you're reading a statute. That's a right. sign that you're reading it incorrectly. Right. Um, and I thought Asher had a very perceptive rejoinder to my concern about Kennedy's, I, I think, shocking assertion that Chevron was less applicable. Yeah, let's get to that. Uh, so um, I just when it was a bit when the issue involved lots of money. Yeah, let's go through his. Uh, I think it's worth discussing a little bit here uh, more. Um, I don't want the whole episode to be about a rehash of, of King versus Burwell because this is not. Like, you know, I just don't think that. Uh, I don't even know, Joe. I. This case makes me go crazy, right? For reasons that we talked about last time. Yeah, so let's right? not talk about them again. So we won't talk about all those reasons. Yeah, right. but let's go through Asher's email. Yes. Um, uh, uh, and I, I, did, I just still kind of five points that he made in his email because it was a, a lengthy email and it was, I would kind of like to read the whole thing aloud, but reading is kind of deadly, you know, yeah. on the air. So I'm just going to kind of go through what I think of his main points. And Asher, you get back to us if we've screwed up here and, 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 yeah. uh, or if you just arguments. have more to say. Oh, uh, of course, uh, yeah. we welcome Based on that. what I saw here, he should get back to us every week. <laughs> um, so, so uh, first of all, you know, so we talked at the beginning last time about um, uh, Justice Kagan's hypothetical, right? Right. Which is, say, let's take this into different situation. Right. Let's take this to a different scenario where instead of which it, was an analogy exchanges and all that, yeah, it's like right. I'm going to give and my some clerk, of Asher's some of Asher's email is devoted to demonstrating that the analogy is imperfect. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, Asher, save yourself a little more time next time. All analogies are imperfect. That's why they're analogies and not the actual thing. Well, he, so, I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to delve into it only to learn, oh, an analogy was imperfect. No, I think he has. So let's, let's talk about something better than that. He means more than that though. Of course. He means more than that. And and so just to remind the listeners though, Kagan's, uh, um, hypothetical was suppose I assigned to my law clerk, I said, you know, we'll write this memo. Right. And then I said to Another clerk, you know, edit Will's memo, right? And um, and, then and, then, and then I said to a third person, right? Will's not know, available. If Will can't do it, I want you to write that memo. And then that indeed happens. Will can't do it. The other person writes it. Does the second clerk that I mentioned have to edit the memo, or can they say, you know, I'm sorry, Justice Kagan, but Will didn't write a memo, so there was no such thing as Will's memo, right? right? And it's a clever hypo because, of course, no clerk in their right mind would refuse to edit the memo on the account right. that Will didn't... Because they were... Because, and that's important, yeah. because they're all operating on a faithful agent model of the instruction, right? right? They're all trying to do right by the instruction and the instruction giver in a faithful agency sense, right? Yeah. And, and that's really important because the faithful agent tradition 
in, in construing disputed statutes is a very important tradition uh, in, in U.S. law. I can't speak as well to U.K. law, although one well, might it pushes, expect to see it, it pushes well. you toward what – yeah. I mean I don't, I don't want to make this point too strongly because I think even a Scalia textualist – approach does essentially the same thing in this particular oh, case. Yeah, I, but 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 what you're saying about faithful agency and and especially when you put it in the context of like when your boss is telling you to do something. When your boss tells you to do something, I think most of us become purposivists, right? Right. And in, in the sense Although, that we're yeah, look, go ahead. I, yeah. I, I, I dis if what you're saying is faithful agency is purposivist, not textualist, I disagree. I, I think that I think faithful agent approaches are consistent with both purposivism and textualism. Uh, and uh, and it, faithful agency is agnostic as between them. Actually, um, I think I disagree with that. Okay, cool. But I, uh, but the, I think text it can. The question is, what weight should text play in discerning purpose? Like, yeah. But another way to ahead. say what the disagreement is is that, um, you know, this is the heart. This is the heart. This is that aspect of the Hart Fuller exchange in in the Harvard Law Review in the fifties, right? Mm -hmm. Fuller's view, and I think he's right about this, is that there is no such thing as text that is clear on its face. A listener's right? footnote here, Joe is Fuller and I am Hart. Correct. In almost every sense. Indeed. Yeah. Um, uh, who beat who to the grave? That's the question. <laughs> I don't know the answer to that. I, I don't um, either. Uh, <laughs> Fuller's, Fuller's assertion, I think correct assertion, uh, is that um, w when it seems like text is clear on its face, it's only because the purpose is so evident and so dominant, no one even thinks to get behind it or ask about it. And, right. and, and Hort, Hart calls this sort of the core and the penumbra. Yeah, this part, and actually, Fuller that part says of there is, is no in, core, yeah. there is no penumbra. It's, it's core all the way or penumbra all the way because people are always taking account of purposes. And that's the, and because communication is a, is a purpose of act. Yeah. That's right. It's not banging into typewriters. It's actually trying to communicate with people. This is, this is an aspect. This, yeah, I think we agree with that because I think this is the weakest part of the concept of law is the core penumbra distinct. Although it's also kind of right, but that's a different discussion. Someday we're going to talk about what I'm working on and we can talk but the, more about but this. The, but the, the thing we're talking about right now yeah. is, you know, faithful agency, is it about purposivism or textualism It dis distinctly? And I, and I think the answer to that is no, uh, because uh, one can be a faithful agent and say, ah, the best way to implement that is textualism, or one could be a faithful agent and say the best way to implement that is purposivism. The agency point goes to the 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 position within the realm of actors on the scene exactly. which is the point you were talking about yeah i think very very concisely and powerfully last week thank you joe right is this <laughs> like who's 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 in charge in in the thing we're about that's to do, the that's right? the court that's what i was going to get to you as well because i think it's when you say faithful agent the ambiguity there is agent to whom like is the or, court or the an agent of congress or an agent of the people and, and scalia would say of course agent of the people and therefore, as agent of the people, there's a need to be textualist in order to, you know, in order, you right. know, we have a controlling power over Congress to get them to be clear in a way. Yes. And we should use that power to get them to be, uh, to get all of us as a, as a collective to be faithful to the people. Yeah. And that's why yeah. I don't think, I think both a purposivist and a textualist could with equal, um, uh, equal candor and equal accuracy both call themselves faithful agents. Well, let me let me go through a little bit more of what he's written here because I, you know, we've got more feedback too. I thought yeah. we, I thought this would be a forty-five minute episode. Yeah, 
Um, go. <laughs> I'm in the point. Wait, so, 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 so what he does first, what he, what Asher does first in his feedback is to say that there's a difference between telling, uh, even in the clerk context, there's a difference between the judge saying, edit Will's memo and edit the memo w- written by Will. Um, and unless you appreciate that distinction, then the phrase that Congress uses, established by the state, does no real work. And I, hmm, I, I think this may be the weakest of Asher's arguments. Well, it's the one most like, this analogy isn't exactly like the thing being argued about. Right, it's an analogy. And he said he goes to great pains elsewhere in his email to us to say he's, you know, the fact that this would be surplusage actually doesn't bother him. But he's just saying you're, you're not what he's saying to us is you're not appreciating the force of the argument that that when Alito comes back at Kagan in the yeah. argument, and says, as we also what talked we, about. Last yeah, time. exactly. I mean, right. that uh, that that the the phrasing like, you know, to say Will's memo uses right. a different phrase to denote the thing than the memo written by Will. And those those words may have different import. Yeah. And we can, uh, of course. We can imagine instances where, and I think this, you know, Breyer's questions got to this point, the contrast between Alito's and Kagan's got to this point. I think everyone's struggling with the same thing, which is what, what, how do you, or do you know you're looking at a context where the actor specified that it's of the essence that they're the ones who do the act, right? So yeah, when right. it comes to taking law school exams, it is of the essence that the individual student who's being graded on that exam is the actually the one who wrote the exam. <laughs> it wouldn't be it's not okay to substitute somebody else for yourself to take that it's not you know the exam by will it's got to be by will right you, you will, will had to write it not emily not whoever right oh you have that rule <laughs> so <laughs> when does it but that is simply to restate the question right which is are we in that context or a different context? well that's his next point that as i distill it and 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 i think kagan went here when he said well i think it matters you know what the when, when I'm sorry, I'm moving between he's here, but in the argument, the response was, it, you know, you have to put it in context to right. Kagan. She's, ah, and that was like walking right into her trap, right? I mean, uh, <laughs> well, uh, so, one so might say her point, and, and, which is well, that context is important. Yeah, yeah. She's less trappy, I think, than Alito is in general, wouldn't you say? Who knows? Alito, I think, is a little more trappy. Let's see if the listeners agree with that. But, uh, uh, but, but, but Asher's second point was that the boss's instructions and congressional statutes are uh well th- those those are two very different communicative contexts right so he says like if the boss told me edit will's memo and somebody besides right. will wrote the memo i'm gonna edit that damn memo <laughs> right right because that's there's a context of hierarchy there that and one could ask asher but wait a minute when it comes to statutes isn't it still aren't we still back in boss well, Congress is the boss. Well, this when is, it comes to social policy this, specified this by is statutes, why, this is why right? I think I emphasized last time, and 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 I will emphasize again that I think it depends on your model. Precisely. Not to get too close to again the work I'm doing, which we should talk about at some point. I really want to, um, but uh, that that your your model of the legal system very much affects yes who you think the agent is, and therefore what reasons you should use in interpreting right. messages. Right, like who's who's communicating to whom matters a lot. Right. for this right um so yeah. <laughs> i can imagine actually you know if, if i were smarter i could in, in in an instant gen up a hypothetical involving an employment situation where the boss says something and unless you interpreted it in, in a textual way you would be at risk of being fired right i mean sure you could probably gen something up and you know i'm 
I'm, I'm having because it's in the afternoon. I'm having an adult beverage right well, now. Look, Joe. it could be. So I <laughs> it could be. You know, when it could be that when when the boss is directing someone to do something that involves tax forms or right other human resources matters, it could be that a, a more literalist or textualist approach. There, there are plenty of context in the employment. Like if the boss says, "I want you to fill out these tax forms and save us as much money as possible," the boss doesn't mean fraudulently fill them out to pay no taxes. Right. Right. That there's a the boss's purpose there is to get you to take advantage of of uh, um, uh, what would you call it? There's a difference between what uh, tax avoidance and tax evasion. Yeah. Right. Avoidance is OK. Evasion is not. The boss wants you to do uh, the avoidance part and not the evasion part. Right. Um, so any, anyway, I mean, you could that you can make that. I mean, that example is not perfect. You can make that consistent with textualism. But uh, here's the example that, that Asher gives. Um, which I think is similar to the example given in what in the uh, challenger's uh, brief. Which which of his five points are we on? Don't worry about it. Don't Have worry. We about gotten it. to point one yet? No, no. Yeah, we're past point one. Okay, good. This is an interesting. I mean, uh, he says, "quote If a government contract says that company A will construct a building, but if they go under or can't do it for some reason, company B will, and company B does the building, no one would ever say that the building was built by company A." Right. Quite just so. And no one would ever say if I got someone else to take an exam for me um, that I had validly taken the exam. Right. Right. That's an instance where the fact that the the fact that performance is rendered by a particular individual is of the essence in that context. You know, a company's credit worthiness, a company's track record in building buildings, you know, that's in contract. But imagine that you had I see this. I don't even think this works, because if you had a contract, if you had a government contract that said, Company A shall build the following government building or the following building for a particular purpose, right? right? His contract says, if not and A, then B. I know. I know. I'm getting to that. Company A shall build the building. This is what the statute says. Every state shall establish an exchange, and then it goes on to recognize that maybe not every state will, right? But so so uh, gov- uh, Company A will build a, the following building and with the following specifications. And then there's a provision that says, look, if Company A doesn't do it, Company B shall build such building, mm-hmm. Okay. And then if there's a separate provision somewhere else in the contract, right, which says uh, no employee is allowed into the building, in, into, 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 the, into the building built by company A until such time as the building has been inspected for safety, right? I don't think, and I, I could be wrong, but I don't think anybody would really read that to say that if company A didn't build it and company B did, then- We don't need safety no, inspections. No, we don't need safety inspections. I don't I, think anybody I would do that. So I, agree. I don't think that gets us- so again, it's just because another. That's a context where it's not of the essence that A did it. Right. Safety applies to all buildings, whether built by right. A or B. And we're just getting, right. you know, we're just kind of elaborating on a point which is very succinctly stated by Breyer in the argument, and and which Asher recognizes elsewhere in this that that um that the phrase "built by Company A" or the phrase "established by the state" denote right the thing, right, rather yeah. than connote the thing, and yeah. you know that's a compact way of saying that what that this is we're using that phrase to denote a particular kind of object to point to a particular kind of object right not to describe a class of things that could or could not fall into that category Mm -hmm. and and so uh um i think that's how you would read it in the building context with the safety inspector that i just mentioned right that 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 built by company eight obviously identifies in this context right the building which shall be inspected before people come in we know that because it's hard to imagine it would be hard to read an intent in there for, well, if it's so long as it's not company A, go ahead, move on in. No inspections, no nothing. Right. Um, Suddenly, none of the safety requirements apply. 
What? That would be weird. Before you reach that conclusion, you would want a lot of evidence that there were some particular problems with company A, which don't apply to other companies, and you'd want to know a lot of stuff about this, right? And uh, the kind of thing that the challengers try to bring in here with like Gruber's video uh, stuff about like we're trying to incentivize, et cetera, et cetera. But the textualist argument shouldn't care about any of that. Anyway, um, uh, and and, and so anyway, so Asher, I think, so... Again, you know, Asher points out that there are other parts of the statute which seem pretty clearly to point out that established by the state and established in the state should have the same meaning. Yeah. Right. And uh, so he recognizes that. Um, so here, here's his last point. I'm just going to read this to you and see, get your reaction, Joe. Uh, he says, when you when you say that you can read, quote, exchange established by the state to mean, quote, exchange supposed to have been established by the state, you give established by the state no extra meaning. Because that's synonymous with just saying exchange. It seems weird to say that the phrase does the work of denoting the set of supposed to have been state-established exchanges when that set is coterminous with the set of all exchanges. So while Kagan perhaps thinks that's what the phrase means, I think the SG says that the state did establish these exchanges in a term of arty kind of way. Did you follow that? Yeah, I think so. I, I think we've addressed that, though, at least from my part right that yeah and i don't agree with it i mean i i don't think it's i don't think it makes it redundant or surplus i think they agree don't they kagan and the sg i mean the sg says like that these are what is it 1311 these is it 1321 which is the federal exchanges is is such exchange and the 1311 is the one that says state i think that's what it is but anyway so 1321 says the federal government establishes 1311 exchanges yeah but i think that's the same thing that the the will's memo hypo uh, meant right that, and, that, and the denoting yeah yeah I, I think so and i don't think you know in a one 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 maybe one way to emphasize the the sort of uh the way all this became a pointer toward federalism is that pointing out that the exchanges are are experienced by the insurance shopper as state level things Right, right. right. Uh, individualized for their state. Yeah. Even if the state isn't actually the one who created the back end, instead it was a federally created back end for that state-facing exchange. Yeah. Right. Um, putting it at the state level and ma- and having it seen to be by the consumer a state thing is a salient idea, right? Mm-hmm. In helping people shop for insurance in their state. Right. Salient. Not least because insurance regulation has historically and traditionally been a state matter. Right. Right. And there are other aspects of the state healthcare system that will have to interface with the federal exchange in that state, as we talked about last time. Yeah. And and the complexity of the relationship between, you know, state insurance law and federal law. I mean, the McCarran-Ferguson statute in terms of antitrust and its relationship with state insurance. I mean, there are, th- this is a longstanding and complex set of questions. So I don't, I think it's actually not at all a surplus or redundant idea to emphasize textually in the statute, these exchanges are things that the consumer experiences as state entities. Right. Without respect to who provides the back end, they're state faced, they're state facing and state faced exchanges, right? And that's why this denotation idea is, is I think, a meaningful idea. Yeah, well, that's I'll, one reason why it is a meaningful idea. I think there are many, but that's one of them. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll leave it at that. I think okay. you said it well. And, and 
you know, Asher may, if we still haven't hit it, I think he should get back to us. Sure. Uh, he's got one last point, which you started with. But before we get to that, let me just say uh, that in his email, Asher said, hey, you know, I listened to the first two thirds of your episode at the time that he wrote it. I assume since then he's listened not only to the final third, but he's listened two or three more times like all of our fans do. Uh, <laughs> oh, my. <laughs> um, uh, so I, again, I want to emphasize that, you know, so so maybe, you know, I, I'd like to hear his thoughts after listening to the last third, because that's where we got into this um, discussion about. This his, mode, second, his second email sounded like it had been from that. Maybe so, because yeah. this, this mode of statutory interpretation, remember, that's where we, that's where we got into this uh, discussion of, like, the court that reads little bits in isolation is like the, is like the bad guy that listens for you to make a mistake in, your, in, in, in the way you're talking and then says, ah, now I own your house because you've said something wrong that you right. didn't mean, right? So that, that's a weird mode of statutory interpretation. I think we got into that a little bit at the end of yeah. the episode. Anyway, I, my in my head it was it was the better it was like where we finally were kind of firing on all cylinders with it a okay. little bit more. But um, so if you haven't listened to that, Asher, uh, I'd love to get your thoughts on that too. Asher's final point is the one that you started with, or that you mentioned before we got going on his first four points. That was the one about Chevron. Mm. And, and again, for the listeners, the Chevron doctrine—it's re- it's, sounds complex. It's really quite simple. Uh, you know, we have administrative agencies, you know, the president isn't running everything him or herself, you know, it's got all kinds of agencies right. and Congress writes laws saying, Hey, agencies do these things. And when Congress, creating the agencies and giving them tasks, giving them powers and right. things and, and when the, and, and, and says, you know, make rules governing clean air, et cetera, all these other things. And when the agencies make rules, right. And when, when they act on statutes and they have to interpret those statutes and Chevron is just a doctrine saying that when, uh, that, that when uh, this, the statutory language addressed to the agency, and I'll forget about that, you know, what it means to be addressed to the agency, at least for now, uh, that when that statutory language is ambiguous, uh, you, the court should defer to the agency's interpretation right. so long as that interpretation is permissible. Ambiguous or, or creates a gap for the agency to fill. I mean, sometimes it's actually not right. unclear. It's it simply, it gives the agency a gap to fill. What right. we're debating in this case, I think, is the ambiguity category. Right. Is there something ambiguous? And so the argument in this case is, hey, look, at, at best, challengers to the statute, at best, your argument that that subsidies are not available on federal exchanges because of this language it, it hinges on an ambiguity in the statute. Right. And the IRS has already interpreted this to mean that the uh, such exchange refers to 1311 exchanges and, and therefore subsidies are available on federal exchanges. So not only do you have to show that that interpretation is uh, uh, not the right one, or you don't, but you have to show that it's an unreasonable or impermissible interpretation of the mm-hmm. statute. And that's a much, you know, so so it's kind of like, you know, Supreme Court justices, if you decide to apply this so-called, quote unquote, Chevron deference, then even if you would disagree with the interpretation of the agency, you've got to defer to it if kind of reasonable people could disagree yeah. about it. Even right? if it's not the interpretation you yourself would pick if you were running that agency. Right. And, and. What came up in the oral argument in this case is that um, it, should that really apply to cases in which there is going to be a huge difference made in terms of federal expenditures? You know, here all these a huge number of subsidies, right. in fact, will turn on uh, the interpretation here. And can, do we really want to defer to an agency interpretation when it right. comes to such a huge part? Right? Or I don't know if it's a huge part of, but. But a lot of federal dollars do we and so Kennedy brought this up, right? And maybe there's something to do with IRS and spending. And there's some earlier cases that I haven't read, which have to do with this stuff. Um, so uh, and, and I think the way he said Asher, I think, said the way that you said it was that the point is that if it's really big, um, then uh, 
then we should we shouldn't defer any less just because this is a big issue than if it's a small issue. And he says it's not so much that, right? It's that if it's a really big, if a lot turns on it, then we should be less ready to conclude that Congress meant to give that power to resolve that ambiguity to the agency. And I think that's an excellent argument. I don't think that, I don't, I did not take that at all to be what Kennedy said, which is why I found it shocking that he said it. Um, I think Kennedy said what I said he said, which is um, we shouldn't defer in the face of an ambiguity, given the magnitude of this uh, expenditure. Now, I think Asher's theory, right, which is if that big an expenditure would, would result, perhaps you should be less prepared to conclude that there is, in fact, an ambiguity, right? I think that's actually, you know, he mentions the Brown and Williamson tobacco regulation case. You know, co- Congress doesn't hide elephants in mouse holes. Fair enough. Uh, they don't, or at least the court says they don't. Uh, and so I think if, if that's the, if that's what Kennedy meant to say, uh, or if that's what someone wants to say, then sure. I think there's, I think that is another great argument uh, for why, um, this is unambiguously. And I agree it is. I, I mean, I, I do think the statute is unambiguous. I think subsidies are available on federal exchanges and I think that's clear. Um, so I agree with Asher uh, you would expect. You think that's clear textually? Correct. I think almost everybody in the world thinks that, you know, no one thought at the time what they attribute to Jonathan Gruber. That's what all, in, right. The right. evidence is, and, and I mentioned this last time, I'll mention it again. Uh, the people who tell Congress how much a statute will cost, right? Yeah. So specifically addressing the very right. issue you and I are in the middle of talking about, right? Right. What will it actually cost? That's the Congressional Budget Office. It's called scoring the statute. Right. What will it cost? none of the evidence, none of the scoring CBO did was predicated on the idea that subsidies would be available if the state is the one who did the back end for the exchange, but not the feds. Yeah. That never happened. I I think why didn't it happen? Because no one thought that's what this meant. I think if you made people bet their life, bet their lives uh, about what this, what, what was the intention of the majority of legislators? And maybe even all, right? Um, you would get very few, very few votes in favor of. Well, they didn't want to make it, make subsidies available on the federal exchanges in order to incentivize states to create state exchanges. I just don't. I don't think anybody would bet their life over that. Uh, maybe the challengers who are so far into this thing now that they've completely internalized their arguments, as we mentioned last time. Maybe right. Now, again, that to a textualist, that doesn't matter. Right. But right? To, that's but, the environment. And but what you're saying act- you're going beyond that and saying, like, even if I ignore the fact that that nobody thought realistically, nobody thought this was, was what was being passed, right? And then again, the argument will come back. Nobody knew it was being passed, et cetera. I, all that's nonsense, you know, for reasons we won't go into now. But um, you're saying beyond that, if you just look at it, if you were an alien from Mars, which Breyer speculates, you know, a literalist alien from Mars, you would look at this whole thing and you would come out, which way, Joe? That the IRS has correctly interpreted the statute. Unambiguously. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's the strongest. Yeah, the IRS yeah. has correctly discerned the unambiguous meaning of the statute. Uh, and that, that does comport with Asher's uh, theory that um, when you're confronted with a question that may or may not involve Chevron deference, it could be good to ask, well, how big a consequence turns on the meaning of the provision in dispute? Because the bigger the consequence, 
the more I might infer, oh, Congress will have settled it in the, in the text of the statute unambiguously. Now, interestingly, feedback we got from another listener, listener John. Oh, do you want to skip to that? Is, it's not skipping. It's deeply intertwined with it. Yeah. It's predicated on precisely the opposite contention, right? Which is that the bigger the issue, the more incentive members might have to actually try to punt. Uh, because if it gets too clear in the text of the statute, it simply draws more vigorous opposition from yeah. one's opponents. John says that not too long ago he worked at as a lawyer for Congress, and in a um, in a nonpartisan, in, in an institutional capacity. He says so. His his job wasn't at risk yeah. with every election, like a legislative council's office where they're where they're advising members and staffers on draft legislation. Yeah. And he says very often, this is really interesting, you know, and you want to know what's in legislators' minds. How do they think about the institution that they are constituting? He says that oftentimes uh, members or or often their staff would would want to know how would a court interpret this language, right? So not just thinking about like what the language should be, but how is it, how will a court likely interpret it? Uh, And a lot of times, uh, John, listener John would say, uh, you know, certain parts are going to be unclear, um, but a court will likely apply Chevron and defer to an agency interpretation. Um, And he says that when they weren't happy with my answer because they wanted to be sure the language would be interpreted in in only one certain way, I would suggest making the language more clear or to reflect that, uh, in order to reflect that. And they Uh, would say... However, often they often said that if they made the language more (laughs) clear uh, to support what they wanted... Uh, it would never get approval from the other party and would never pass. In other words, both parties would make the language ambiguous enough to get approval from the other party, but tried to hide bits and pieces in the bill so that courts would interpret the language in the way they wanted it interpreted. Which is, it's, it's, it, I, I like this because this is often what we, you know, what we see in, in some scholarly works and we teach to students, right? That right. ambiguity doesn't just result from lapses of the mind. It can be an intentional strategy, right? It, basically, right. You're, you are incompletely theorizing the statute. Right, you're incompletely right. specifying the meaning. You're because kicking the can down the road. Because to completely theorize it would be to prevent its ever occurring. Right, uh, and um, and that's the sense in which Asher's very interesting, uh, and and I think in it, at one level intuitive and common sense premise, right, um, that uh, the the magnitude of a consequence is a reason to infer a lack of ambiguity. Right. If you're if you're struggling to figure out is the statute ambiguous or not, right? One reason to conclude again, this theory says one reason to conclude that it's not ambiguous, that Congress really did answer this question, is because it's a really important question. Right. So of course they answered it. What what John is is telling telling back the curtain a little bit and saying, Oh, dude, <laughs> not so. Right. Right. Yeah. Actually, if it's the sort of thing that would draw your opposition out more clearly. Your, your incentives are just the reverse, right? Which is to say, you know what? I can't win a clean victory. What I can win is a, is a later maybe chance of a victory in an agency. Right. So, I, so I, I'm willing to let both my side and my opponent's side kick the can down the road together. Yeah. Let's let it get worked out later, right? And, and, it, and it only works if, if sides have like differing views of what will happen it's like going to trial for lawyers well sure but both sides can be optimistic even though only one will win. even though yeah so each side is making the following calculation right they're 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 taking the value of each statutory language option right right 
is equal to, uh, well, it, it is equal to the sum of the different outcomes of that option times the probability of each one. Right. Right. So what's the probability court's going to go against me times the value to me of the court going against me plus the value that the court will be with me times the value that the court will go with me. Right. And that's going to be the, the, the value of that thing. Now, this, this is not actually how people think, but this right. is the model of how people think. Sure. And it's the same in the same way that, you know, people decide whether to go to trial or whether to settle. Right. Yeah. People have different views about the probabilities of the outcomes or and and or the uh, the values of those different outcomes, you know, whether they win or lose at trial and by how much. And so the same thing here, you know, we can't get a clean victory here. Maybe it's better for us to kick the can down the road and give the agency the, you know, we'll just say, uh, you know, the agency shall uh, write rules preventing unreasonable blah, 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 blah. Right. I would have rather specified what was unreasonable. Maybe. I have a good idea of that and I know what I want them to do and what I don't want them to do. Right. But I can't get the other party to agree. But I think the agency will write rules which are, yeah. you know, and my, my estimation of the probabilities will affect how much I want to kick the can down the road. And then also principal agent problems. How much do I just want to be seen as doing something about this? And right. I don't really care what the outcomes are. So in particular, and you and you could even be more sector specific, right? You could say, well, look, it, it, it would appear, I don't know if this is true or not, but it would appear that in contemporary life, um, that if what you what you would most prefer would be to write a statute that hands to banks, <laughs> you know, fist over fist, exactly what they want. Right. right? You say, oh, but that will lead to criticism. And I can't get that passed. Uh, what I'll do is we'll just send it off to the Federal Reserve because they'll regulate and those regulators are completely captured by banks. Yeah. So the banks will get what they want. I don't need to hand it to them in code. I can right. hand it to them in the possibility of subsequent regulation uh, because I know they'll be able to f get for themselves and they're perfectly able to work that system, right? They'll go to the Fed or maybe it's the you know Office of the Controller of the Currency or whatever it is, right? Whoever the regulator is, the banks can play them like fiddles go do your no <laughs> you don't need that from me the other right? side knows that too and so either right. they're going to insist on more ambiguous or or, sure. or or less ambiguous or but what no or, one's or, talking or about is here's care. the laundry list of things that right. that the bank has specified they absolutely right. want right or, or the opposition there's a principal agent problem and the opposition actually doesn't care about pushing back they only care about being perceived about pushing back that's possible and therefore too. they'll let this go through because they know what the agency will do. you know yeah there are all these different models this is all about the political economy of congress right so yes. how do they make, reach decisions and then what are the results of those decisions and how much do they care about the results of those decisions and it's versus a fascinating other kinds question yeah. to what degree should courts in the in the in the tradition of faithful agency or any other tradition to what degree should courts try to use their understanding their best understanding of that political economy to come up with techniques for construing statutes. Well, I mean, this is this is Scalia, and this and it, there's a great literature out there, Abby Gluck and others who mm -hmm. have been uh, Victoria Norse and other people who have really been adding m deeply to our understanding of how Congress works and right, you know, really fleshing out some details, and it's fascinating stuff. Well, this is um, this brings us to um, some comments by David Ziff, uh, um, who's um, at the University of Washington. And tweeted at us, and you dub. His was the blog post that I had him. I think I, and again, I I don't know, but I think I mentioned last week uh, when we were talking about this about there was this blog post I'd read about um, the kind of constitutionalization of statutory interpretation, mm. and it was similar to but not the same as my kind of um, institutional authority reasoning about this. And and so uh, David tweeted at us, and it was and and he tweeted you know uh, two two links at us to his blog. 
one of which was exactly the one that I had in mind. So mm. I'm going to read about the, the, the first one uh, first. And, and this is about um, Justice Scalia's textualism, which, to respond to your last part, is partly about saying that the court should, should not care about, should not try to correct for political economy defects in the Congress, right? That it should interpret according to canon so that every message Congress send has an answer, has an interpretation, right? And maybe you have to look at the whole statute, blah, blah, blah. You got to look at the whole thing. But, but there are textual canons that you can use to derive a meaning in a one-to-one relationship between texts and applications. And if you can do that, then you diffuse, right? You totally diffuse this obfuscating purposes that, that congressional, um, um, uh, uh, congressional um, parties and others can use, right? So kicking the can down the road I think in Scalia's mind, defeats the idea of accountable democracy, right? Yeah, all, that's incorrect, but well, okay. Well, I'm, just, I'm, just, idea, I'm talking about the groundings here, right? True. He's trying to create accountability, <laughs> right? So it's not, it's not a, you know. What it, it does is it maximizes the power of the president, uh, which, m- which is certainly more accountable than. Well, I don't know that it does that. Maximizing the power of the judiciary. Well, to the extent that kicking the can down the road ultimately leads to more agency interpretations being right. referred to, right. that's an expansion of executive power over, over congressional power right which is both the, of them are more accountable than judicial power right but I, i'm talking about textualism in general for statutory interpretation now leave aside the administrative stuff which makes i think scalia's um personal position here more complicated but textualism as a as a, as a motivating um as a, as a theory for statutory interpretation is motivated i think by an idea right or it can be there's at least one idea that undergirds it which is that Congress should be accountable to the people. We are all accountable to the people. And our role is to use a manner of interpretation which connects messages that Congress wrote, right, um, uh, directly with outcomes, right? And that when courts try to fix those outcomes by saying, well, you know, this seems to come out a little weird here, you know, absurd or something like that. Uh, So we're going to try to figure out the overall purpose and attribute purposes to Congress that they may or may not have had then you kind of disrupt that, those lines of accountability. This is exactly what we talked about last time, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so that's the underlying idea, right? That, that, um, that this whole idea of kicking the can down the road uh, is bad for democracy, right? Because it makes it less clear who voters can hold accountable for bad results. And then what courts should do is to push back against that and say, no, 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 you said this and it means that. And I know that because you use these words, right? And these words mean the following things. Now, uh, in his, uh, so he's got two posts, right? So, so one, what I call nihilis, nihilism, because both uh, David and I both kind of concluded that at least if Scalia's words at oral argument in this case were indicative of a kind of interpretation or a kind of interpretive thing where, you know, if the words in isolation are clear, they should trump uh, they should trump other words in the statute or they should trump an, a kind of a, an overall cohesive purpose to this. I think I, the way I phrased it last time is that if the words in isolation are quote unquote clear, then you can, you, sh- you have to read them to accomplish a homicide on the rest of the statute. Right. right? This is, there's a, there's a blog, Scott, is this Scott Lemieux? Who's, there's a blogger who, who's been using this phrase based on an old Seinfeld episode about the, <laughs> a misprint on the answer to a card in Trivial Pursuit. 
Yeah. So George Costanza asks the other character, "Oh yeah, you know, yeah who yeah, invaded this, Spain?" Yeah. And he's the Moors invaded, or uh, the Moors, and yeah. and the, and the, and George says, "Nope, the Moops," and <laughs> and he and he wins because <laughs> the card says Moops. You right. didn't give me the answer, Moops. Therefore, you right. lose. I win, right? Which is, you know, a homicide on good sense. Um, and who, of course, other than George Costanza, would commit such a crime? Right. Um, and it turns out maybe the Supreme Court. So the I love it, the Costanza method of interpretation. Right. Where the rule is what's on the card. Correct. Not what is actually true. Right. Yeah. It, it, that we all know to be true. Yeah, but this is even worse because it's like... And, and who's disciplined by that, right? Oh, I guess it's, you know, the people who ultimately, that's accountability for the people who print Trivial Pursuit cards. Because if customers are frustrated by the craziness of that, they won't buy Trivial Pursuit anymore. I mean, you could you could come up with some fancy theory about who's disciplined by, right. you know, if you're of a mind to find is, someone to spank, you can come up with a story about who's feeling the hand. This is even but, worse, though, right? Because because this is like if the answer is the moops and the effect of the answer being the moops is to make the entire a whole list of other cards and in fact, the entire game pointless. Right. Right. Then are you going to read it as the moops? If it's just one card and it's one turn, maybe maybe it's decisive for a particular game. Right. But. It doesn't undo that. It's not like people can say, well, Trivial Pursuit is never worth playing again because there was a one misprint on one card. Even if you took the view that the right answer is the one printed on the card and not the actual answer to the question, right, of which the thing printed on the card is evidence, right? Right. So I, I think it's even worse than that. Well, so anyway, Dave, David, uh, David's blog post, which we'll link to in the show notes, um, calls this method isolationism which is probably a more neutral term than my term, nihilism. <laughs> Certainly more restrained. Yeah. And this is in addition to the usual, like, textualism, intentionalism, purposivism. These kind of, and in my class, I kind of break down each of those into three or four different types right. um, based on all kinds of other things. Isolationism, but, yeah, it's interesting. It, does, it, doesn't, it doesn't have the, it doesn't have, I think, the, the emotional, um, I don't think it has the emotional tone that nihilism does. And that's a, that's a good and a bad. Like, that's a right. plus and a minus. Nihilism really, there is something, there is something that I perceive to be perverse and that although an advocate for it might not perceive it to be perverse, they do perceive it to be, I, they, they seem to perceive it to be important, like importantly about power and about who has it and of what sort. And so that's isolationism sounds a little bit um clinical well i use nihilism because it it's it's a this isolationism as he calls it is takes words out of any kind of communicative context as asher put it right it takes right. it out of the idea that it's it's one institution speaking to another and that communications involve kind of right. utterings and understandings which are basically translations of various kinds of knowledge right, right. it's the it's the and medium which carries the translation of a, of a and kind of knowledge. And I don't mean to be critical uh, to, uh, I don't mean to be overly critical of the, of the term, but what isolationism doesn't capture is how that can be perilous, right? That, that right. isolating phrases in that way can be perilous. Well, isolation, in his blog post, he gets at that, though. Isolation, yeah. when you're talking about, like, that person might have Ebola, like, isolation is good. Right. <laughs> it's not, it's the opposite of peril. <laughs> um, but he, in this context, right. I, it's actually perilous, I think, to a social project. Well, he says that it's not even the approach that Justice Scalia has taken in the past. And, and again, 
Justice Scalia only floated this thing in yeah, oral argument and, that and it's clear, so we don't know. Yeah, we have no idea what people are going to say yet. He may be yeah. consistent. And he quotes this case, uh, utility, utility Air Regulation Group versus EPA, which is a statutory interpretation case. And, and he talks about Scalia's language in that case, saying that um, he sounds like a purposivist, purposivist, right? Which is the can, which is the idea that what you should do is in, is read something that someone has said right. inter- and, and figure out what their purpose was, right. and then act according to that purpose, right? Sure. Rather than to try to kind of like a bad kind of Google translation of a foreign language where you so tra- if he's a nihilist, word. he's a faint-hearted nihilist. <laughs> well, but he he points <laughs> to that case and says Scalia uses phrase like you have to look at the overall statutory scheme, you have to look at statutory objects, you have to look at the implementation strategies, the broader right. context, the substantive effect, the design and structure. So Scalia focused, as as as, and I'm paraphrasing here uh, David's post. You have, Scalia focused on intent, context, structure, object, and purpose, uh, all those things. But right. it was wholly textual. So what is what what is what distinguishes Scalia's textualism from what most people would understand as purposivism? It's that you infer things about purpose only from the text, right? So he says that you, to determine these things, Scalia doesn't look at what people say on Meet the Press. Or in the editorial pages of the New York Times, but no one's suggesting, or even legislative history. Ah, right. Instead, you only look within the four corners of of the pages, right? Right. Um, but still, uh, and, and you're and you're reluctant to use things like the absurdity canon, which can be vehicles to smuggle in the ju- the judge's own desires, own policy desires, right? So you have to be very careful about that. So textualism disciplines judges, and it disciplines the legislature, right? Yeah, but in, yeah. in these earlier cases, I have no says, idea if the latter is true. That's... Even when doing this, like isolationism is a step beyond this, right? Yeah. And in this case, I think it truly is nihilism, right? Because you would be reading words in isolation, which easily could, at at worst, easily could carry the interpretation that you and I, Joe, are attributing to this, right? Yes. In order to murder the rest of the statute, right? Right. Uh, and then, you know, uh, of course, there are arguments that it actually won't accomplish that murder, that either states will come on and establish their own exchanges or that even without those things, will, you know, but we talked about this last time, so I don't want to go back into it. The other thing that he, see, the other post that he had was um, uh, talking about how uh, there's a difference between statutory interpretation and constitutional uh, review. So when the court is reviewing um, uh, a statute for constitutionality, right? and uh, it maybe is more skeptical. A lot of times it's not for reasons we've talked about in other episodes. We've talked about this deference versus uh, scrutiny in other episodes. Yeah, sure, sure. Um, uh, including our favorite case episodes. Yeah. Um, but nonetheless, uh, the court is the institution which is charged with defending constitutional values or constitutional text, right, against statutory incursions. And therefore, has to look at the statute skeptically. And if the statute runs afoul of constitutional either text or values or however, whatever your method of interpretation is, uh, it's your responsibility to strike it down, right? Even if it lead, even if it leaves some kind of transmogrified version of the statute or some kind of deformed version of the statute, right? That's that's your responsibility as a judge. Whereas um, when you're interpreting the statute. Without that in the background, you're just trying to give meaning to the statute. It's your job to make the statute work. Right. Not to uh, not to be what we said in the like we talked about in the last bit of the last episode, not to be the person who is looking for things which could act as landmines right. to blow up the uh, intention. Right. So uh, so he recognizes this in uh, or he, he refers to Scalia in a matter of interpretation. And I think at the Tanner lectures and other things that that other, some of us have taught in, in classes like this where Scalia kind of 
amplifies on the the dangers of kind of common law constitutionalism, right? Where cases, you know, you look for purposes and you build on cases in the same way that you're you're building on negligence law, where it say judges are authorized to and right. long have served the purposes of making a sensible negligence law. Uh, that's a danger in constitutionalism because it then constitution uh, constitutional review becomes a vehicle for judges' own policy preferences. Not so in statutory interpretation, David argues. You were good, you were trying to break in. I think you have nothing to say. I want you to finish. Oh well, I I'm pretty much done. Um, uh, Where does he put the avoidance canon? Because that seems to straddle these two. Well, that's what came up in the right? federalism aspect. Yeah, but, uh, right, because what I mean, if if you're if you to to say that in the statutory construction context, one is not treating it with the same skepticism. Um, because you're not involved in ensuring that it stays within the constitutional confines, right? Um, but the court seems to indicate that there's a category of cases where that that construction exercise winds up producing possibilities that, if they were taken seriously, would right. would seem to breach would seem to drag the case into the constitutionalization right. issue. And that's constitu- going on in this case. I mean, right. except in the other way, but. Um, uh, I, well, I don't know that he to referred to it. I don't remember if in the blog post he re- he refers to that, but I mean that clearly, as you say, straddles the two. Yeah, it kind of bridges the uh, two ideas, right? right? That it's a way you can walk across. You and know, you can imagine, like, look, this is another way in which law is not that difficult because you can predict all the arguments people are going to make, right? So, <laughs> in other words, you know, the question is: so you got some statute, its clearest meaning seems to conflict with the Constitution, at least as you read it. Like, obviously, people are going to argue about whether it's better to leave Congress with half a loaf. Right. Or no loaf is half a loaf, like something it didn't intend. You know, this is and then so it's going to get all mixed up with your interpretations of what Congress does is either textual or based on their intentions. And if it's based on their intentions, but you avoid constitutionalism, then maybe you're going to avoid constitutional conflict. Then maybe you're going to end up with a with a statutory meaning after judicial interpretation. That is what no one intended. And is it better to strike the statute down at that point? And then it's going to depend all on effects and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, you, you can just see all this, right? Well, it certainly did all play out in the briefs and at oral argument. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. I think that's true. All right. The, I feel, we got to leave this now, though. Okay. We can come back to it because maybe we haven't, you know, I, who knows what we've said. I can't remember anything we've said. So let's... <laughs> let's I think in late June, we will, we will uh, undoubtedly say at least a word. Um, yeah. In response to what the opinions turn again, out to you be. Know what bug, you know, I, I'm, I'm feeling all jumpy because it bugs me that we've devoted two episodes to this in a way. And yet I love the feedback that we've gotten. People have come up with really brilliant things to say, including you know, David and, and, and Asher and listener John with the uh, congressional. All, yeah. all these things are very interesting. Very interesting. And yet this case is not. Right. I mean, it, it's hypothetically interesting. Like if Jonathan Adler were here and we were talking over a water cooler about statutory interpretation, I think that would be awesome because he's super smart. It'd be really fun, right? But the case is easy. And I'm not one who ever says cases are easy. That's true. You don't say that. I do not, but this one is. Okay, let's go. Last bit, listeners. And this involves uh, our um, getting a bottle of whiskey as a gift. It does seem like that is it's an what emolument. has been suggested. <laughs> it's- is it an emolument? Would you consider it an emolument? Uh, yeah, is there some danger in receiving emoluments? Uh, well, I don't think so. Um, two, two parts to this feedback. Do you remember this one, Joe? This is from listener Paul, who's yes. gotten in touch with us before. Right. Do you remember the context of his last uh, missive to us? The, uh, 
typeface versus font? Yeah, yeah, this is, uh, harkens back to our Matthew Butterick episode, I believe. Such a good episode. Yeah, this is the one about um, design and law and um, typefaces and fonts and and, uh, um, organization and, and, you know, visual design of legal documents. Um, We talked about, and this is is after we, you know, before that we'd had an episode about uh, Word and email and various things. Maybe we should do one of these again because we've been, been talking about a lot of law lately. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so Paul got back, got back to us about, uh, that Matthew Butterick episode to point out that we had used the, I don't forget which of us, was it you or me? I actually don't remember now who had used the word font. You and Matthew Butterick. Yeah. And you didn't correct us. I think. No, I did actually a few times try to use the word typeface. I didn't correct you. Yeah. And and so I think we read his feedback on the air. Yeah. But I, but I did, I myself in that discussion, I think was using the word typeface rather than the word font. Right. And, and, um, and, and of course Paul I, was, I think a bit surprised. Cause I think Matthew we had, Butterick. we had follow up from that episode yeah. where we talked about, you know, of course we both know the difference between the font and typeface and font had to do with the whole. Right. And one of us even talked that way. The actual mechanical things that used to, yeah. So it's the, the size <laughs> of the letters, you know, what you would call the font size, the right. font and, um, and other, yeah. anyway, uh, the font is the font size, the, the typeface and, and maybe even the, um, whether it has italics or, or various, it's all the stuff that would be cast into metal and stamped out, right? The font. Yeah. Yeah. And um, we knew that. But Paul called us out on it. <laughs> yeah. And, and this, is, you know, this is kind of an apology for that. Didn't he phrase it that way? Or am I going to have to cut this part you know, out because I'm being too a, a hard little, on Paul? A little bit, but... I don't mean to be hard on Paul. Here. I think it was yeah. a... No, I think it was a... I think he's... More than that, it's just sort of about fellow feeling and about enjoying our show. Well, let me start... Let me start with, uh, and, and this isn't going to last very long, but uh, let me just mention this. Uh, he, he first got to us about coffee roasting. Which is great. Yeah. So he, he says he's a former Montrealer uh, where he had access to good, flavorful coffee or, or any food, um, but now lives in a, in a small town on Canada's East Coast, um, which is what, have you been up there before? I have not been to Newfoundland, I don't believe. Yeah, I went up there. I went up to, uh, I went backpacking in Cape Breton. Um, one time beautiful up there I, I really want to go up to uh what's the name of that place is it grow morn uh uh national no preserve idea. or it's up uh uh you know in lab i think labrador mm. so uh, for, for, uh, farther north wow um, but it's beautiful up there i love it so uh maybe, maybe we should go pay paul a visit and do a live show up there sometime um <laughs> I, I really do think it's beautiful up there. So anyway, he lives in a small town on, on Canada's East Coast. So now he roasts his own coffee. He does. Um, cause, Which is uh, cool. And and, um, and what does he say? Uh, green coffee, first of all, keeps much longer than roasted coffee does. And this is what a lot of people, I think, don't know. is that Roasted coffee, you should kind of treat like produce. Doesn't yeah, it? it doesn't last very long. Yeah, I would say like, you At know, its best quality. And it depends on the roast and the beans and everything. I usually try to buy them within like, you know, roasted like a week ago something like that, mm-hmm. and then use them within a week or two. It's usually what I shoot for. Because uh, I can get that here. Sure. If I couldn't, maybe I wouldn't care as much. But, yeah. you know, why, why get the old stuff when you can get the newer stuff? There you go. Um, so he says he took the plunge. His first roaster was a small, cheap, he says $260 or so, roaster, very noisy, tiny batches. Um, he wouldn't call it great. Um, and, and to get a really good one, you can spend $500 or more, right? But luckily, green coffee is cheaper. It only costs about 25 cents of electricity per pound of roasted coffee, so the roaster ends up paying for itself after a couple of years, you know, if you're a, a coffee fiend. But he, here's his suggestion. I'll, I'll probably put this in the show notes. Um, 
that he purchased the Gene Cafe CBR 101, a much quieter, very consistent, uh, a very consistent roaster. It makes for very good coffee, highly recommended. And now my coffee uh, is consistently the best I taste. Just the best. Yeah. Um, and we, in a prior episode, we linked to some sources for uh, coffee roasters for home. Yeah, those from Listener Bunny, I think. Yeah, yeah who who sent us some. So this is another thing that we call. can. I can tell you what I do. Um, I, I've got a Chemex. Did I already say this on the show? I don't know. I got a Chemex. I got an AeroPress. So both of them are basically you pour hot water over ground beans and you have coffee, right? So it's very simple. You know, not an automatic thing. Certainly no kind of Keurig or anything like that. I buy recently roasted beans from the grocery store up the street. Uh, I grind them at home on a pretty cheap grinder. I could probably make better coffee by getting a better grinder. Um, but, but I, uh, um, I, I, I grind them on the spot and then I pour hot water over those beans at a certain temperature. Uh, a barista who, who lived with us for a short bit call out. I don't even know if I should mention his name though. He hasn't written that. So I won't mention him, but, uh, he needed a place to stay. So we lived with us for a bit and he left us a scale. So now I even weigh it out, um, to get the ratio right, but it doesn't take that long. Basically pour hot water over ground coffee beans and you got coffee. It's great. Um, and you do it. Uh, to delicious effect. I, I love it. It's fun. You need a little, you know, you need to be a little, um, you need something like that in your life. Okay. You to be a little, a little geeky about, I think. Um, but I've not taken the plunge of roasting my own beans, partly because I can get such good roasted beans right up the street. Right. Um, I, I can see how it'd be fun, but sure. Um, but I don't do it. Okay. But you know, Joe, if you're going to take this up though, I don't know if you're planning to get a roaster or anything like that. No. No plans to do that. But certainly good to link to his recommendation. All right, let me, uh, we're going to end the show here. I had, I had planned to talk about something else today. Oh, you did? That we're not going to get to. Oh, shoot. You remember I was going to talk about, uh, you know, um, you know, I told you, I think that when, when it comes to Apple, people kind of can't think straight. <laughs> they lose their minds. I do minds. remember you they mentioned lose their that. Minds. Hmm? I, I've often been accused of being a, yeah. a kind of Apple fanboy. Right. Which um, you don't like when I, people accuse you of that. I, I think people lose their minds. They can't, I, I, they, um, they don't, uh, see, I'm not even going to get into it. Okay. Not even, gonna, maybe, if you're interested in hearing, I, I think there's something interesting here. Okay. I think there's something interesting which, which uh, applies to the doing of law, the sense of craft and motivation. Oh, okay. Because what's, if you are a bit of an Apple exceptionalist, like I am, I, I do think they are a, an exceptional company. That doesn't mean they're always right about things. It doesn't mean you should right. buy all this stuff. That, that doesn't have anything to do with it. It just means that they have done something unique in, in terms of motivations. Right. And unless you appreciate that different motivation, everything you guess about what they will do is wrong. Okay. And that's demonstrable by the fact that the people who have attributed those motivations to them have gotten everything wrong for the past <laughs> decade and a half. Um, <laughs> But anyway, maybe we can talk about that at another point. I think it relates to the way that other people should approach their work or, or may want to approach their work or do, right, um, in law and otherwise. Okay. Okay, so I'll leave that marker out there. So we're going to finish with this, though. This is from listener Paul, who says that in his late teens, and this is the same one who was, uh, anyway, in his late teens, decades ago, uh, while they were out of the house, I tried a taste of my parents' rye whiskey. Now, kids don't do this. Don't do drugs, kids. Don't drink. Right, Joe? Yeah. Take it as red. Yeah. Um, Seagram's black and white with the two little dogs in the label. It was disgusting. I figured, well, I guess, uh, you know, that when you're in your 40s, your taste buds end up all shot, uh, all shot to hell. And by then, maybe this stuff becomes drinkable. 
Uh, and so I struck to draft beer. <laughs> a year or two later, backpacking through Scotland, I ended up in, I can't pronounce this, Kyleken? Do you know this? I, I, did, I was not familiar with that place. On the Isle of Skye. After setting up my little tent, I love this guy already. I want to I go backpacking through Scotland with this guy. Okay. Um, uh, I walked over to the local pub for a drink or two and a chat. What a way to do it. Just sleeping out on the, you know, in the beautiful landscape and then walking over to the pub. I hear people love it. Um, you don't want to do that? No. Oh, my God. Are you, why are we even friends, Joe? I had no clue. I, it doesn't make sense. At some point, the gentleman I was talking to asked me, I'm, I'm not going to try to do the accent here. Thank you. <laughs> but he kind of spells it as if I should. Uh, have you had any local stuff, laddie? Oh, no. Uh, years later, I was able to figure out that, that the local stuff was Talisker. I took the generously proffered glass, neat, and carefully took a sip. Oh, my goodness. This is what they were talking about. This is what Robbie Burns was writing about. It was a revelation. I came back from Scotland a few weeks later. Tasty British-style beer and proper single malt whiskeys in Montreal in the late 70s. Don't even think about it. Mm. Didn't have it. Didn't have it. Repeatedly disappointed with everything I could easily find in Montreal, I stopped drinking uh, beer and whiskey. Of course, wine on the occasion was de rigueur. Uh, I am French after all. Nowadays, good craft beers are being brewed all over the place, and excellent affordable single malt whiskey is easy to get. Even in the boonies where I live now, I'm able to pour myself a wee dram and pretend I can hear a bagpipe off in the distance. Mm. Um, and then he goes into a little bit more uh, bio stuff, which is totally cool. This was a great email to read. It was fantastic. It was a great email to read. But what he says is, uh, his apologies to you, Joe, for addressing his explanation of the fine points of typefaces and fonts during his feedback of episode 34. An explanation that I knew was full well was unnecessary. In my defense, I knew that the world's foremost authorities on speed trap jurisprudence, trademark, would be able to hear the <laughs> wink and the grin in my text. Right. Yeah. So please accept the, quote, 10-year-old that should be arriving any day now as a tardy bomb, and, uh, and please do share it. It's small thanks for all the fine, enjoyable erudite brand banter that you, Joe, and your guests provide on oral argument. Which is delightful. Which I read as saying that you, Joe, and the guests... <laughs> <laughs> Which is not how it was written at all. All right, um, that's a lot of reading, but but boy, what a, what a nice email. Now we have I haven't I haven't gotten this yet, but yeah, we will we, report. We will drink it on the show. If if he in fact sent us something, mm -hmm. um, I, it could be that he has merely sent us a notional uh, whiskey. Mm. Um, it could be he sent us an actual whiskey, which would be amazing. Either of did. those would be more Either, than enough. A notional one is awesome. A, yeah. a real one is like incomprehensibly awesome. <laughs> uh, so either way, that's totally cool. Yeah, I think instead of setting up a Patreon to try to cover the costs of the website and all this other stuff that we do, if occasionally we get like bottles of whiskey and, and, and homemade coffee and stuff like that, yeah. that's, that's, don't you think that's enough? Oh, that'd be a great, you know, set up a website where you, <laughs> you, you donate things, you sponsor bottles of whiskey <laughs> to be sent to the person. They'll call it whiskey on. And yeah. you, and you, it's when you, you donate and then they, every so often they'll send a bottle of whiskey. Maybe even our enemies would contribute to that because if we drink enough of it, we'll be knocked out and our shows will be shorter. <laughs> <laughs> we have no enemies. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I'd like to think not. But you know, you know, I do, I do continuously lose Twitter followers. I don't know how I do it. Hmm. Yeah, I start. I I think I've gained. So I I I got my Twitter account back in two thousand and seven. Okay. I have a very low. I think I mentioned this before on the show. My my I have a. It's really cool to have such a low Twitter. If I if I'd signed up like two months earlier, I think it'd be down in the, like the hundreds of thousands instead of. I think I'm in a. I don't even remember what I am. But it's low because I signed up early. Um, 
And I think I've gained an average of like one new Twitter follower every month <laughs> or something like that. Okay. Um, you have a lot more than I do. Really? It doesn't surprise me. Yeah. You're, you're a more likable person, I think. Certainly more rotund. Everything I, every time I tweet, it's, it's like the, uh, the spam mail people say. Like every time you send out a new email newsletter or something like that, that's when you get all the people signing off. Mm. Getting, and so every time, I, every time I tweet something out, that's when people unfollow. <laughs> it's like, oh, that's right. I'm following him. Right. <laughs> it's time Delete. to unfollow. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Anything else? No. Not for me. You've been wanting in this for a while, haven't you? Not true. I, I could get a sef- second beverage and go for I'm another hour. I'm sad that we're not talking about, you know, Apple as an approach to law. No, I'm not, I don't want we'll to do say that. I don't some, want to go too far with that. But. We'll do that in some future episode. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, my story about being accused of being an Apple fanboy and why people are totally wrong about, about this. Yeah. You can tell it's, you can tell it's uh, summer is arriving here because there are carpenter bees. Mm-hmm. And I've been seeing a carpenter bee flying around outside your window. Um, I can't see to the window because there is a drape in the way, but it's a quite translucent drape. Yeah. And so there's lots of light and shadow coming through. And one of the things Ooh, coming poetic. through in the shadow yeah. is the, bee, the the body of the carpenter bee. I could tell it's carpenter bee because of the size mm-hmm. and the, and because I'm, I am one of the universe's most ardent and sworn enemies of the carpenter bee. Uh, that is why I have no trouble perceiving its presence. Oof. This and judging a, it. This is deep. To be a future carpenter bee corpse. What does the carpenter what does the carpenter bee represent to you, Joe? Uh a satanic degree of entropy. <laughs> it's completely unacceptable. And with that we end the show. <laughs>